You're listening to a Southern Star Media Production. There are cultural differences, of course, and I was starting to learn those differences and learn the language and many other things of that nature. But I thought a bit of company, maybe from people who would be backpacking or might have English anyway. I thought that would be good. So that was how the idea of a hotel started. I just didn't think it would lap onto this big stage and become a bigger thing. I thought it would be a little small thing that I could quietly do. And guess what? A year after we opened, we were written up in the Sunday Times of London as one of the 10 best sleeps in all of India. Oh, my goodness. Of course, that was a nonsense. An exaggeration. No, no, it weren't that good at all. But I didn't say a word. I just accepted it all with a big smile on my face. Hello and welcome to the Southern Stars Coronavirus Podcast. I'm the news editor, Siobhan Cronin, and this week's podcast is an interview with well-known broadcaster and one-time Indian hotelier, Bibi Baskin. Although a Donegal native, Bibi now lives in Crosshaven, from where she runs her life coaching business and recently published her second wellness pocket guide called The Happy Book Volume 2. She spoke to me earlier about her move from Ireland to India and back again, her successful career and how she has found contentment in her County Cork home. So Bibi, good morning and welcome Now, you grew up in County Donegal, so tell us a little bit about that, and also I'd love to know how you got the name, Bibi. Oh my goodness, how long do we have for that one, Siobhan? Well, as long as it takes, I'd love to know. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in southwest Donegal, a small village, a two-streeter called Ardra, which is not far away from the better-known Killybegs. And uh, it was quite an isolated upbringing for me because uh, sadly, and I'd say also traumatically, uh, my father died suddenly when I was six. He had taken me for a walk that day after school at about four o'clock. And by six o'clock, he was dead. And, you know, it was an awful, awful time after that. And and I suppose the one thing that I would see now in reflection, because I've lived a long life, obviously, uh, the one thing that I think it caused is that it created a hugely uh, independent spirit in me. It made me realize that you can't rely on people to be there for you forever. And it was probably the creation of that attitude that caused me decades later, in fact, when I was 50, to go off on my own, to India and set up a whole new career and business and job and everything else. So uh, as, the, as the old saying goes, God moves in mysterious ways. And sometimes we would prefer it not to be that mysterious. And so but tell was... me, before India though, Bibi, a young kid who's lost her father, did you become very, very close to your mother then? Or how did the dynamic work in the family? No, no, not at all. I mean, this was so long ago. This was the late 1950s in in a remote part of Donegal. So you can only imagine my mother being widowed at age 38 in those circumstances. Uh, I I have two sisters 
eight and nine years older than me. So mom was very busy trying to get herself sorted, I figure, uh, which I think is perfectly understandable. Uh, and because of the age gap, I wasn't really close to siblings. And then if we were, <laughs> oh my God, it's going to sound awful, I know. But if we want to add another layer into it, um, I grew up uh, as a member of the Church of Ireland and there were very few of us in that part of Donegal. And so schools were there, national schools were segregated on religious grounds. And in my national school, we were so few that the total number of students in the school was never more than 12. And if you consider that there are eight classes, you know, junior infants, senior infants, first, second, etc., I actually never had a classmate. You had eight classes and 12 pupils, eight into 12, once and four over. Never had a classmate. So not being close in age to siblings, daddy gone, mum carving out a new life, me with no classmates. I mean, <clears throat> I became just a very independent person, I think. I, I spent my time uh, playing the piano and reading an awful lot of books. And you went off and learned Irish at some stage because you weren't a native speaker, even though I think Ardra is, is that pretty much in the Gaeltag, near enough? There's a, a townland outside it, which would be called Drak Geltok, Spotted Geltok. It means it's a bit Geltok, but not the, not the whole hog. Um, yeah, traditionally, anyway, in Protestant schools, Irish would not be a major thing. It was taught, of course. But my mum saw, somehow saw the need for it. And she sent me to a local teacher who was very good at Irish. Uh, and that's where my growl for the Gaelic started. I'm sure of that. Well, she did a great job because I think an awful lot of people wouldn't realise that you weren't a native speaker. We, we've been very used to speaking the Gaelga on the telly for many years. And uh, so well done to that teacher. She gave you a great blast altogether. Um, and then you mentioned then that you went to India. Now, I'd be very curious about the choice of India because, you know, it does get a bit of a bad reputation for women. And you went off as a single woman on your own. So... I mean, why India? And had you researched it? And were you a bit apprehensive going at all? Um, no, no, not at all. Uh, the why India is because, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I've been doing quite a few podcasts. It's the new Zoom thing. And my voice, I, I notice, can't really take it. So apologies for the croakiness. Um, I, why India is because for many, many decades earlier, I'd had a huge interest in an Indian system of medicine and health and healing called Ayurveda. And I know because I've spent many, many years since then in India, people assume uh, that I learned it when I was there. Not at all. I learned it when I was working in RTE in, in Dublin. I just never spoke about it. And so <clears throat> when I decided I would now want to have a whole change of life, change of job, uh, maybe even change of country, I didn't know. Um, I chose to go for a holiday just to clear my head, as you do. And I thought, I'd go to this place in India called Kerala, <clears throat> which is where Ayurveda began 5,000 years ago. Uh, so it was with that in mind that I went on the three-week holiday that turned into 15 years. I've said that before. Yes, and you 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 became a hotelier there, and almost by default, I think, because you is it true you just you bought a big house and then you decided it was too big for one, and you had guests coming in, and it kind of morphed, kind of 
um, holistically into a hotel. Would that be right? That's a lovely way to put it. I'm going to borrow that, Siobhan. It more <laughs> holistically. Anything with the word holistic in it, I'm yours forever after that. <laughs> well, it would be appropriate morphed. for a Kerala, I suppose. <laughs> it would be very much. It did indeed morph into that. Um, I, I bought it also because, well, I felt the need to put a roof over my head. <clears throat> Excuse. Um, and then I did think uh, if I took in some guests, that it would be a bit of company. You see, <clears throat> excuse me. I was the only, as I call it, it sounds racist, but I was the only white gal in town in that area. And there are cultural differences, of course. And I was starting to learn those differences and learn the language and many other things of that nature. But I thought a bit of company, maybe from people who would be backpacking or might have English anyway. I thought that would be good. So that was how the idea of a hotel started. I just didn't think it would lap onto this big stage and become a bigger thing. I thought it would be a little small thing that I could quietly do. And guess what? A year after we opened, we were written up in the Sunday Times of London oh. as one of the 10 best sleeps in all of India. Oh, my goodness. Of course, that was wow. a non an exaggeration. No, no, it weren't that good at all. But I didn't say a word. I just accepted it all with a big smile on my face. And then, of course, the tourists started flocking in, I presume, after getting a recommendation in the Sunday Times. I mean, that was the trip advisor of its, of its time, really, wasn't it? So to get that. Oh, trip advisor, don't go there. Um, uh, they started before then because uh, by Indian law, if you're a Westerner, like you and me, we can't just go into India and, and start a business and keep all that dosh for ourselves. By Indian law, we must have an Indian business partner. And so I had to choose one, and I did. And he had worked in tourism earlier, so he had contacts in particular with British travel agencies. So they were our first guests. And then after that, the Irish. And then from all over the world as well as it happened. But yeah, lots of Irish soon afterwards. And, and um, every time I hear about you you and Hotel India, I, I think of that movie, The Best Little, what was well, the name? And I, is <laughs> the, that, Marigold Hotel. the Marigold Hotel. Is that in effect what it was like? You know, British expats coming over and, you know, staying longer than you expect and sitting in, you know, leafy verandas, reading books and sipping, I don't know, tea. No, you're getting very close. I just have to contour it a bit. I love Irish, as we said. And would you believe it? We actually did have a poetry reading, Asgerliger, on the back veranda, as you call it, the leafy veranda. We did. And we spoke Irish the whole night with our Irish guests. It was lovely, absolutely lovely. No, uh, the, the Marigold Hotel, I always say about that movie, is that outside of the hotel, it is absolutely accurate. Everything that you see happening around uh, the hotel itself, my God, no. I hope I was better than that. No. <laughs> we, we, we ran at fairly high standards. I mean, I lost seven kilos in the process of actually uh, doing the refurb. It's the best and easiest way to lose weight if you want to. Yeah. I probably need to do it again. But no, I won't be doing another Marigold Hotel. Not ever. And so tell me, it does sound idyllic, I have to say. I'm sure the weather was probably always fantastic. 
loads of lovely guests in a in an absolutely stunning part of the world. So why come back? A couple of reasons. First of all, I had been there for 15 years. And there is no doubt at all about it in my mind. But at the very start, uh, it it was, as you say, idyllic. It was different. It was beautiful. It was challenging. And I had to learn an awful lot of new things, including the language. But more than that, the whole cultural aspects of doing business there, quite different to here. Uh, and that was fascinating for me because I love to learn. To this day, I still love to learn every single day. Um, but after 15 years, that enchantment had gone because I had become familiar with it all. And so then you're left with the other side. And the other side, as I learned indeed in India, a lovely saying, every coin has two sides. And it's a great little steer through life, if you remember that. If you're in a disagreement with somebody or whatever, every coin has two sides. And the other side of that idyllic coin was, uh, poor India, I do love the place, um, bad timekeeping, you know. Uh, the guest would go to the wellness centre for the massage at eight o'clock, but the bloody therapist wouldn't arrive till ten past eight. But maybe you're be not used to that. To would you not be used to that as an Irish person? Is that not commonplace here too? Well, wait a minute, Siobhan, you see. I did more than 1,000 live TV shows. If you're doing a live TV show, you can't be late. And if your show is on, let's say, before the nine o'clock news and you don't go off air until five past nine, the country will rear up on you. So, no, I'm very punctual. <clears throat> yeah. So, you so that, that, be what that was one, other, yeah. That's only one. The other thing was that I was getting older. You know, I went to India when I was 50. And I love to mention that because so often I meet these younger folk that are turning 50 and they're saying, oh, Jesus, my life is over. I'm middle aged. And I always say to them, get up the yard. I went to India when I was 50. You can do something similar. But now 15 years have passed or thereabouts. Uh, and, and, you know, bodily changes happen, all sorts of depressing things. And I just thought life would be easier back at home in Ireland. Uh, it felt right. Uh, it took me a couple of years to, to make it happen, because that is a thing I think that pertains to bringing any change into your life. You can want the change, feel the need for the change. But by the time you get all the little boxes ticked, uh, it can take a while. And in my particular case, I wanted to come back just uh, as the Celtic tiger was still raging here. But I paid myself a rather modest Indian uh, salary, so I couldn't afford houses, truth be told. Um, so I was like, I was on daft.ie, that great Irish website where you go to if you want to buy a house or sell a house or rent a house. I actually sat in my little office in India for two years on daft.ie looking for a house. Going down. And I'm sure there's no, <laughs> nobody else alive who can say that. They should hire me to do an ad or something. Um, so the prices did come down and that suited me. And then eventually off I went. And then you went from being a Donegal native to the opposite end of the country, Cork. So why choose Cork when you have beautiful Donegal at your beck and call, I presume? Well, yeah, up to a point, I suppose that's true. Um, I love change, Siobhan, and I've lived long enough now to be able to see a pattern in my life, a thread that runs through it. And that constant thread is 
change. So I went from, you know, becoming a, a broadcaster uh, to a hotelier and now working with wellness, <clears throat> although you'd never believe it listening <laughs> to the croaky voice. <clears throat> You're overworking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm learning about Zoom, that Zoom can exhaust you. So I, I won't be doing much after this. But um, because I love change, I, of course, I knew Donegal very well because I grew up there. I knew Dublin very well also. And I thought, where else? And really, it was almost a bit like sticking a needle in a map and see where does it land, you know, with your eyes closed. But there was one other factor. And as much as my reason for going to India was about the the health system called Ayurveda, believe it or not, it was Ayurveda that guided me to Cork. And here's how it happened. Uh, The Kingsley Hotel in Cork City, lovely hotel, Earlier on, not currently, but earlier on, they had this most marvellous Ayurvedic spa in the hotel. All uh, Ayurvedic uh, therapy, you remember it, therapists Mm -hmm. and Ayurvedic doctor and all the rest of it. And I was once during that time uh, on the Late Late Show, and as usual, yamming away about Ayurveda. And somebody from the Kingsley saw me and said, my goodness, would you come down and have a look at what we're doing here? and see how is it, because we don't know that much about it, more or less, those words. And that was how I started to come to Cork. And I would come to Cork about twice a year to the Kingsley. And then when the time rolled by, and it was time to buy a house and live somewhere in Ireland, I thought, I like this place called Cork. That's where I'm going to go. And that's where I went. And that's where I am. And tell me this, um, for people who are listening now and they haven't maybe heard of Ayurveda before, and I know it's a whole massive belief system, Bibi, but if you could describe it to somebody in a sentence, how would you describe what it it means? I can't. It's a 5,000-year-old medical system. You know, back when I first discovered it, which was here in Ireland, in the late 80s, that long ago, it was then considered to be an alternative system of medicine, a bit like acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Um, In India, it's full scale. If I got ill in India, I could go to your Western doctor, who most likely prescribed me a a pill for every ill, as they call it, disparagingly, I know. Um, Or I could go to an Ayurvedic doctor. So that's the first point about it. It is fully accepted as a full-scale, very good medical system. To sum it up, it believes very much in preventative medicine. With Western medicine, we tend to wait until we're sick to go to a doctor. Uh, In Ayurveda, you go when you're healthy and you build up the system. Uh, You build up the immune system in particular so that you don't encourage disease to come in. So I would say that's one of its greatest strengths. There are two others. It can, through natural means like massage with specific oils and herbs and herbal tablets, it can cure and deal with a lot of diseases. And that's another lovely thing about it. Uh, The third thing is that it has a great psychology. You know, here in the Western world, uh, if we have a physical problem, we go to one type of doctor. If we have a mental problem, we probably don't go to any doctor until it's far too late. But they're two separate things. In Ayurveda, it's all the one. It's truly holistic. So let's say you have a pain in your back and you go to the Ayurvedic doctor. That doctor may well say to you, uh, how are you sleeping? 
How is your relationship? What food are you eating? All the rest of it. It's, it's really beautiful. So everything is connected. Holistic. And tell me, oh. do you feel that, um, because I presume you're, you're kind of practicing it now since probably the 80s or 90s, do you feel that you've had a better health outcome as a result of that than you would have had if you were just going along with Western medicine the whole time? <clears throat> this is not, I'm not a great sample of anything today with this program. <laughs> Um, I, I don't practice it religiously. You know, I always say, and especially when I give these motivational talks about wellness, I always say, don't look at me as a saint. I'm no saint at all when it comes to wellness. I live a normal life of a Western person in 2020. So I have my gins and tonics or I have my wine or whatever it is. I don't exercise enough. Da -da 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 -da. But what I do is this, and I think this is the key to it all. No, if you want to live a fully Ayurvedic life, you really would need to be some class of an Al guru up the mountains in the Himalayas or somewhere, you know. What you do is you pause every so often and you put goodness back in. So you make sure that you're eating well, that you get fresh air, <clears throat> that you get sun for vitamin D uh, and, you, and rest up and particularly stop being busy. The Western world has gone mad uh, particularly pre-COVID, with being busy. I'm, I had a great week. I was so busy. No, 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 not in my life. You won't have a great week if you're that busy. You need to do nothing some of the time. And that is when you still the mind. And we need to give more attention, I think, to our mental health. Well, you kind of mentioned it there because you said pre-COVID. And don't you think that a lot of people have suddenly realised, or certainly more so maybe in the earlier part of of the lockdown that gosh when you do take a breather and you do take a break that you actually really enjoy it and you actually can find a lot of wellness just from being still and not rushing around so have you seen that there's a kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel really in in this pandemic and that it has at least showed society rushing around isn't such a great thing i'm not sure it lasts I think it certainly did happen. And as you rightly say, Siobhan, in the first lockdown, now I think people are getting very itchy indeed. And I would worry that what they're longing for is to get back into that busier life that's full of social contacts and full of meetings out there, which obviously then also involves commuting and traffic jams and the whole damn lot. <clears throat> I'm not too confident it'll last. And also I think the key to all of this is that you have to consider it a practice. It's not some vague Eastern notion or idea. It is actually a practice that you have to practice almost every day of your life. And I've been doing it now for quite a few years, so it comes to me naturally. Well, a little bit of it too is is what you know we'd see in, in modern times called looking after yourself. You know, or even, you know, that line, you're worth it. Isn't there a little bit of Actually, that's what was in it originally, going back thousands of years, that they realized you do have to mind yourself and you do have to make yourself number one sometimes. And there's nothing to feel guilty about. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That perfectly sums it up. Um, I think that we, we look after ourselves in different ways here, <clears throat> here in the West. You know, if you're a woman in particular, you look after how you look. Uh, but really, that is temporary and ephemeral at best. 
I think it's much more important to look after how you feel. But that switch, that imbalance is very much still here, I feel. Uh, but I, I'd agree with you all the way on that one. And uh, that kind of is related to my next question, which was about, I remember when you started on Twitter, uh, going back a few years, and you were very funny at the start, and you were you were calling out asking for help, and how do I do this, and how do I do that? And now you're, you're almost um, a, a Twitter a social media expert, because I'm you're absolutely it. brilliant at it. And I always love, I check in in the morning, see what's BB saying this morning, because you're always going to brighten me up with a lovely picture or a little video or something, or a little saying. Um, but, you know, we ha- also have come to realize that Twitter can be a very negative place. Social media in general can be. So how do you counteract that? I'm I'm surprised you're kind of still there, Bibi, because I feel if it wasn't for work, I wouldn't be in that space at all. Um, but you don't seem to be affected at all by the negativity. Or is it just that you make a conscious effort not to see it? Let me be superstitious, which I'm not at all. Touch wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remain there uh, because I don't get a lot of that negativity. I, I've had a few barbs, very few. You could count them in less than one, one the fingers in one hand. Um, <clears throat> when I started on Twitter, and how lovely that you remember that. And God love you again for looking in on me and seeing what I'm yamming on about on the wellness front. Oh, but when I started, there was one comment I remember. Uh, way back in my time in RTE, there was also an afternoon program called Live at Three. And it's, remember it's, it? <laughs> you remember it, yeah. Well, with the passing of time, it's natural that you would mix up presenters and all of that. And I remember one boy who would have been nearly in my vintage, saying, oh, she's back, live at three, dead at four. Oh, my God. I thought, what an awful thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, one other person said, uh, and it, she sounded like a lovely woman. I couldn't understand this. Uh, whatever the context was, it was about RT again, I suppose. And she said, she's had her day to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, apart from those two, and God, I don't want to encourage it, there's been very little else. But I have a strategy that, you know, permeates an awful lot of different aspects of life. If somebody is nasty to you, be kind back. And you know what? Not mm-hmm. every time, but most of the time it works. So that's my strategy. If you want to have a go at me, I will ask you, what's wrong? Are you all right? Mm-hmm. Sorry if I annoyed you. And then if you come back at me again, I just won't bother with you. Mm. But yeah, kindness, I, I'm a great believer in kindness as a, as a panacea for so many things. Because, you know, everybody has a bad day. And sometimes when those people say those things, they're just having a bad day. And you have to realize that. Well, also, I think they don't realize the strength of what they put down in writing sometimes. And it might be an off-the-cuff comment or a little joke, and it can come across much more strongly on when you see it written down in front of you on a screen and people aren't conscious of that um but I also wanted to ask you about you had BB the show when I was I don't know it's not that long ago really I wasn't I was going to say when I was young but I wasn't that young either and um and you said about live at three like you were a very accomplished chat show host and um I'm wondering, what do you watch chat shows now? Or how do you feel? Like, I, I think they've got very, um, 
they they delve much more into the personal now, but uh, and at the same time, they're very shallow. You don't get you don't get much out of an interviewee anymore when you watch a show because they're all primed to say what they want to say, and they rarely go beyond that. So, I mean, are you ever disillusioned when you watch chat shows now that they're not what they used to be? I don't watch a lot of them at all, actually. Um, I I gave in to Netflix at the start of the last lockdown. And I now have to discipline myself not to binge watch. You know, I think everybody who starts Netflix goes through that phase of binge watching until two in the morning. Uh, but I I like the whole variety of stuff that's on, on uh, Netflix. So ter- whatever they call it now, um, terrestrial. Terrestrial mm-hmm. TV, I don't watch a lot of. And I also find, you mentioned Twitter there, but I also find that Twitter is a great source of news. Mm-hmm. It's very immediate. It's like breaking all the time on Twitter. It's a better source. Uh, and beyond that, I don't watch a lot of television. No, really? I like a bit. Yeah, I like a bit of a comedy late at night. But you see, I worked in television for eight years. I worked in hotel uh, hospitality for fifteen years. Well, you do know. you know something, Bibi? Doesn't that just show the impact you had? Because if you had asked me, I'd have said twenty years. You were in RTE oh. at least twenty years. So no, you must have no. had a very good impact while you were there. Um, because eight years is a small enough amount of time really for, for a career as such. But um, <clears throat> yeah, if you consider that I have had an adult working life of four decades. And, and television was less than one. And you can imagine, Siobhan, in my own head, how sometimes that feels so imbalanced. You know, former RTE TV presenter. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I've been on this earth kicking around for a lot longer than that. But that was just how it seeped into the Irish consciousness. I totally. I think that you, you had a very strong impact for the short time that you were there, obviously, that you've, you've made us feel you were with us for a lot longer. And it was also, I suppose, at the height of, of chat show heaven, really, because we had the late late was in its prime. You were there. We had... Um, we're beginning to see some of the big chat shows from America coming in at the time. So it was really the, the epitome of, of the chat show as a, as a genre, I suppose. But you're, you're now in a different space altogether and you do a little bit of life coaching. You do some very good motivational speeches. I, I watched a fabulous one. If anybody wants to watch it, um, I think it was up in County Louth. You did a TEDx speech on wealth and you know, what, what does wealth mean? And you have a lovely book out now. It's your second book. And um, it's about happiness, which it couldn't come at a better time. Because I may I be so oh, it's rude. gorgeous, yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, it's only a slim, <clears throat> it, it's a slim volume. Um, it's a collection of quotes that I've created over the years because I think that is our ultimate goal while we're on this earth. It is to have as much happiness as we can possibly find. And in this little book, um, it's, it's a collection of quotes re- reflecting things that I have done over decades that make me happier. I could read one. Shall I read one? Oh, do please. Uh, here's one, for, ex- for example. Be the light in one person's life today. You know, if we could get into that way of thinking that we can now deliberately and with intention go and cheer somebody up today. It all comes back to you, first of all. And secondly, there's a real feel-good factor in it for you as well. So take one last one. Accept that it, it is okay to make mistakes. Not one person is faultless. I like that one, Siobhan, because, you know, we beat ourselves up so much 
when we get it wrong. And we forget that everybody else in the whole world has done exactly the same thing. So go easy on yourself. That's what that book is about. And do you actually write down, do you have a little notebook that you write down things? Or how do you record Wait a minute. I have endless, countless <laughs> notebooks. Going back to the 70s, full of, first of all, beautiful phrases in English, then good concepts and ideas and loads of quotes. I'm the devil for quotes. And if somebody uh, yeah. said something to you, would you run away straight away and write it down? Or have you a good memory that you'll hold it for no, later? I, I, I suppose the old journalist thing, but mm-hmm. I always have a notebook and pen in my bag. So I'm old school in that way. I write it down. And I could even say to the person, wait a minute, I'm going to write that down. I'm sure if I look around my desk, I could easily find, if I wasn't such a scribbler, things that I've written down this week alone from other people. In fact, I can tell you one of them without checking it. I was uh, doing a podcast with a gentleman. We were talking about aging and the different effects of it. And he told me this story that a man who was 100 years old was asked by a reporter have you any regrets? And the man said, not at all. No point in having regrets. And then he said to the reporter, wait a minute, I have one. I wish I had known when I I was 70, which to a lot of people, including me, seems quite old. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known when I was 70 that I had 30 more years to live. (laughs) I thought that was just lovely, especially for us older folk. It's very consoling. So that would be a thing I wrote down this week. From, you know, a podcast like this. Right. And could you give us a few tips for happiness in a time of anxiety? Because if we ever needed cheering up, it's now. It is. The first thing that I found uh, that has really, really stood by me well in these COVID times, uh, in the in the early part of the lockdown, I started to get breathless. And I have no idea to this day why. So COVID has been announced. We're all learning about it. I get breathless. I think, oh, my God, I'm completely fat now. I must be having COVID. And so the reaction was, first of all, fear. Uh, and am I going to die? And all of that. And then I quickly slept, uh, slipped into an old practice of mine, which is the first panacea for uh, worry in, in these COVID times uh, or any time. I slipped into acceptance. Acceptance means that you uh, take cognizance of the stuff in your life that you cannot change. Like COVID, we have no control over it. And you just accept that it's there. And you say, right, I'm not letting you into my life to worry me. I'm fine and healthy today. So off with you. Go away. So the first thing is acceptance of the way things are at the moment. The second thing is to remind yourself not to worry ever about the things you cannot change. And, you know, it's almost glib to say that, Mm. but uh, it's a practice. If you do it daily, it will help you. The third thing I'd say, and I have loads of them, uh, I think that it's important if you're working from home, uh, to to make sure that you feel like you're working and to introduce routines that suggest you're working. And I believe Alan Kelly, I think, of the Labour Party, just this week said, you know, that the, he's going to make a proposal. I heard this secondhand. I, I'm not sure about its absolute accuracy. He's going to make a proposal to the government that 
if you work after, say, 5, 5.30, 6 in the evening uh, for your boss, that's overtime. So you, you should get more money. And I think it's important to have those boundaries if you're working from home. Have a reason to get up in the morning. And if you're retired, still have a reason. Create a little routine. So those would be some of the things that certainly keep me going. And mindfulness is very, it's very much kind of the buzzword for the last few years, Bibi. And um, personally, I think it, it's it's kind of an ancient practice that we've just repackaged for a modern time. Because if you go back to the ancient beliefs, even from the, the, um, the East, you'll find mindfulness is very much part of that. But is it a good time to be mindful? Should we be living in the now when now is such a scary place to be? Well, I think unequivocally it's the only place to be because we will all we will never have the perfect life it doesn't exist except in little glimpses now and again and I think you have to live in the now because if you think back on the past it's always about what if and I should have and you can't change that for the simple reason that it's in the past if you look to the future and spend your mind, your time in your mind thinking about the future, well, now more than ever before, it's not worth it because it's so uncertain. So what I always say to people is live in the now, but live mindfully in the now. And what that means is look around you, just look around you after this podcast and write down if necessary, write down six things that are good in your life. And, you know, that will bring you into what's happening in your life now. And that's the place to remain. And you will find at least six things. And on that note, can I say that when I do this exercise, when I'm teaching, uh, you know, people will invariably come back with, what are you, what, what are you grateful for? What's good in your life? Uh, their families, their kids, their partners, all of that. And invariably, I have to remind them of the first thing that you should be grateful for when you wake up in the morning and now more than ever before in COVID times. And that is your breath. Where would you be? Well, we won't even answer that. <coughs> grateful for yourself and that you're still yeah. here to even have those thoughts. That's right. And Bibi, your book is, is, is very timely, as I said, and it'd be a lovely little gift for anyone who is feeling a bit anxious. Where can you get it? Right. It's not in local uh, bookstores, bookstores, but if you just go to my website, the the directions are there for how to get it. I have a a person in charge of sales and packaging and all of that. So go to the website, which is bbbaskin.ie. That's couldn't, couldn't be easier. So, no. Bibi, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I hope you'll be able to get a nice glass of water now to soothe, soothe the throat and no more podcasts for the day. That's that's Dr. Siobhan's little prescription for you. Dr. Siobhan, <laughs> I'm so grateful to you. And I'm so sorry that I brought the awfulness to your podcast. No, not at all. Truth, well, because of the book, I, I've been doing quite a few this week. and not realising... Uh, and let me just put this out to, for, to other people because I didn't know it and I know you didn't know it either. Apparently one hour, we'll say, one hour of a podcast on a Zoom is equivalent to two hours of face-to-face. So invariably you you have more concentration mm-hmm. and less distraction and your energy can go. So my energy is fine, but I, I've always had a soft voice 
and it's just not keeping up very well this week. And I'm so sorry for that, but so delighted that we finally got to have this chat. I love the Southern Star. I've been following the Southern Star for as long as I've been in Cork. Oh, thank you so much, Bibi, and and keep reading it. And thank you so much for joining us. And despite what you say, you still have a a fantastic voice. It's absolutely, and it's very, um, it's it's very Bibi. And as soon as you speak and you do that lovely ad on the radio at the moment, I think everybody knows that's Bibi. So uh, thank you so much again. And listen, look, look after yourself. I will. And thank you very much indeed. And so to this week's newspaper. Our lead story is about the constant threat of flooding, which the people in Bantry are now living with, having just endured their third flood since August. They say they cannot wait for a major flood relief scheme and want immediate solutions. We also have a story of masses of potentially lethal Portuguese man-of-wars having washed up on various beaches in the region last weekend. And there is also the great award for one of the founding members of West Cork Distillers, which produces Graham Norton Gin, amongst other big brands. Inside, we have court cases from and around the region and the news that pianist Rachel O'Donovan, who appeared on last week's podcast, got a lovely comment from Coca-Cola for her rendition of their Holidays Are Coming ad. We also hear of two new documentaries on the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder and the appeal from the Cope Foundation for buildings in which to conduct their services in a socially distanced way. There's bad news for Skull's 5 million euro harbour marina plan and two top local restaurants are in the news as they appear on RTE's Beyond the Menu series this week. We have special reports into crime in West Cork, the struggle to keep our post offices open and we have a four-page centenary special on the Camichael ambush. In our second section, we have a four-page motoring special with a summary of all the new models coming on stream in 2021. And our life and community front page gives you 18 ways to be cheerful at this anxious time for all. Emma Conley is making a comforting bread and butter pudding and trying not to watch The Crown in her COVID diary this week. And we also have our usual columnists and motoring and sports sections and local news from every corner of West Cork. So don't forget, if you can't get to the shops, you can subscribe online by going to southernstar.ie and clicking on the e-paper tab. Or call the office on 028-21200 for a postal copy to be sent out to you. And now for this week's musical treat. Classical pianist David Syme has been in the news recently after admitting that he may need to sell his beloved Steinway because he hasn't been able to earn a living since COVID hit his international touring schedule. Based in Castletown Bear, he's a bit of a local hero there, having for years opened his living room to neighbours for classical concerts. He recently performed a concert for Cork County Council's West Cork Living Room Concerts series. And here's a little taster of that concert.
Thank you for listening to the Southern Star Coronavirus podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our podcast, which is available now on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Acast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to another Southern Star Media podcast production. Stay connected to West Cork by subscribing to our e-paper and support local, quality and trusted journalism. Visit www.subscribe.southernstar.ie